I'm looking for from Vesta Center. Yeah, yeah, that's us. Hey, this, oh, this is it. This is it. Oh, I'm Dwayne. We're well, uh, Quotrons here. Yeah. Quotrons? Yeah, computers. No, no, we don't even need computers here. We just trade right up the pink sheets here. You know, uh, companies that can't get listed on NASDAQ, they don't have enough capital. Six cents a share? Who buys this crap? Honestly, mostly schmucks. Uh, postmen, there's always postmen. Right. Uh, plumbers, our ads actually say they can get rich quick. <laughs> yeah. We're helping them finance uh, houses. We're helping them buy their wife a diamond ring, a boat, maybe. Is this, is this, uh, is this stuff regulated, or are you guys, what are you doing here? Uh, sort of. You're dealing with a con man or a whistleblower. I think breaking the law is breaking the law. You still would have to show that they intentionally participated in a fraudulent scheme. It's just that they may have joined that scheme after it had been conceived by the true con man. When it looks like someone at work is out to do you in. What we found is every person we spoke to was betrayed and believed that they didn't deserve it. This is The Language of Business, a podcast to help inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from experts who've been there and done that. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. This episode is part two of our look at lying and cheating in business. We talk to a litigation attorney who specializes in dealing with con men and whistleblowers, plus an expert on dealing with betrayal in business. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Doc. A jury is made up of 12 people whose job it is to determine who has the better lawyer. We're on location in Boston with Bruce Single, who is the co-chair of the litigation practice at Barrett and Single, and welcome to Language of Business. Thank you for having me. Why do people lie, steal, and cheat in business? Because they believe they can get away with it and that they're smarter than anybody else. And he, she, or they who has the better attorney or an inept prosecutor, are they able to actually do that? Well, there are occasions where people do get away with it. You look at Bernie Madoff, for example, one of the biggest con men in history, still about $69 billion, that's with right. the B dollars, and were it not for... My client, I'm proud to say, Harry Markopoulos, who outed him at the SEC, but for Harry's persistence, he would have gone unscathed. And what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that Harry tried, we went to the SEC here in Boston to try to out him. They were uninterested initially, and only because Harry persisted in these efforts and went to New York did he get the SEC to pursue Madoff. Had it not been for Harry's persistence, Madoff would have gotten away with it. And do you think that's the exception rather than the rule? I do. I think it's the exception, but not the only exception. There were certainly others. You started your career off as a prosecutor. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, as a prosecutor, my job for a good part of that time was to investigate and prosecute major fraud cases. And I got to see some highly skilled con men in that position. Has your perspective changed now that you're a defense attorney? Well, it's changed in terms, obviously, of the arguments I make, but I don't think it's changed in terms of my views of the profile of the con man and my uh, sympathy for the victims of the con man. And what defines a con man exactly? I think they fall principally into two categories. There is the hardcore con man who either is incapable of telling the truth or doesn't know the difference between what's true and what's false, and by his or her very nature, seeks to deceive and mislead people for his own great gain. 
the second category, and we've seen quite a few of these in people we've represented, is more benign in that they are people who are not by nature hardcore con men, but they get caught up in a corporate environment that they are not able to resist. And so uh, contrary to their normal instincts, they are swept into a fraudulent scheme. And when you say swept in, I mean, ostensibly people are smart, they know right from wrong. Is it because they're fearful of losing their job? Are they looking for their hand to be in their pocket and get a payday? What are your thoughts on that? In the second category, it's less often greed than it is concern for personal and family circumstances. Keeping their job, not being able to resist the peer pressure in the corporate environment, those kinds of things. If you put your prosecutor hat on, if people unintentionally got caught up, would you have shown them sympathy, or is breaking the law breaking the law? No, I, I think breaking the law is breaking the law. You still would have to show that they intentionally participated in a fraudulent scheme. It's just that they may have joined that scheme after it had been conceived by the true con man. If a whistleblower comes forward, uh, a lot of other people we've interviewed describe them as being courageous. What is your thought on that? It varies. Certainly with the very substantial whistleblower awards available now, there are any number of them who are motivated by greed. Certainly many are motivated by bringing injustice to light, and I certainly think you have to admire those people. What are some of your more famous cases? Well, in terms of the, the world of fraud, Probably the uh, best con man I encountered was a fellow named Reginald Bernard Chisholm. And he got millions of dollars from people for selling purported interest in jojoba bean plantations. Jojobas, uh, he sold this because jojoba is a uh, very valuable uh, commodity that goes in all sorts of cleaning products. And he would show people pictures of these beautiful plantations with jojoba beans growing on them and telling them that everybody needs this jojoba. And he was so charismatic that people parted with their money willy-nilly to him. The only problem is he himself had no ownership <laughs> interest in the jojoba bean plantations. So as a result, people were paying for nothing. Bruce, if somebody comes to you and they admit from the get-go that they're guilty, does that change your defense strategy at all? Well, it can change the defense strategy, but it doesn't mean that you don't have a defense strategy. You know from the beginning that you're not going to be able to put them on as a witness, but having been a prosecutor for many years, having to prove fraud cases, the system now gives me the opportunity to have uh, my prosecutor opponent do the same. And uh, even if somebody admits to having committed fraudulent acts, they are still entitled to a vigorous defense. You said earlier that people get off for one of two reasons, either a very skilled defense attorney or an inept prosecutor. Which do you think is more prevalent these days? Probably a skilled defense lawyer, but there's really another reason, and sometimes they're just not apprehended or detected at all, and so they don't even get prosecuted. What would be your advice to someone who feels that they are about to get caught up in something that just doesn't feel right? Somebody on the receiving end, in Correct. other words. If it's the old saying, if it looks too good to be true, don't do it. And how about somebody who is on the aggressor's end, who just senses this absolute opportunity and figures, as you put it, that they're smarter than everybody else and isn't going to get caught? You're probably not as smart as you think. I can give you an example of probably the best. I gave you an example of a personal experience. I can give you an example of the probably the, one of the greatest con men in history. who's was a fellow named George Walker, who in the early 1900s, you know the expression, do you want to buy a bridge? Right. Well, he literally sold 
the Brooklyn Bridge, not once, but twice, to people who thought they were really buying it. Not content with that, he then went on to sell Madison Square Garden and the Statue of Liberty as well. And finally, in maybe his most audacious attempt, he told people that he was the grandson of President Ulysses Grant and attempted to sell Grant's tomb. Wow, yeah. interesting wow. stuff. Yeah. How do you draw the line between representing somebody versus getting personally caught up in a story? You have to maintain a professional distance, but at the same time, you have to have affinity and empathy for what your client and your client's family is going through if they are the accused. But uh, either as a prosecutor or as a defense lawyer, you cannot get emotionally wrapped up to the point where you are losing your detachment, your professional detachment. And I will say, I have seen prosecutors in particularly sympathetic case with very sympathetic victims and very unsympathetic fraudsters, alleged fraudsters. I've seen situations where the prosecutors have, at times, gotten too emotionally involved. Bruce, thank you. You're welcome. Bruce Single, co-chair of the litigation practice here at Barrett and Single in Boston. Doc, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Next up, what do you do when you're betrayed by someone at work when the language of business continues? Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. In partnership with EDX, Boston University Questrom School of Business is now offering an online MBA, a top-tier business education available to learners around the world. It's a two-year program with a tuition of $24,000, far more affordable than typical on-campus programs. Interested? Get full details at bu.edu slash questrom. You're listening to part two of the Language of Business look at lying and cheating in business. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Doc. You tell your work friends a juicy secret, then it comes back to bite you. Is that a one-shot deal, or is it the start of a trend? We're on location in Wellesley with Elaine Eisenman, author of the recently published book, Betrayed, A Survivor's Guide. Welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you so much, happy to be here. Once bitten, twice shy, or a trend? Probably a trend. Why? First of all, it's important to understand that there are no friends in business. So you may have a work colleague, you may have a work partner, but the word friend denotes that you can trust this person. And in an organization, trust has its limits. Across the board? Uh, every organization, every person, every, every relationship? Every organization, every person, every place you go. Even when things are going well? Particularly when things are going well. So in our book, Betrayed, we interviewed over 50 people who have been betrayed both personally and professionally and discovered that betrayal is the shadow companion of trust. And when you look at trust, too often, people have blind trust in their work colleagues and believe their friends, forgetting that everybody often has the same desire for self-promotion and advancement, and sometimes that gets in the way of friendship. What I find interesting about your book is it is absolutely counter to the prevailing wisdom that every story has three sides to it, his side, her side, of the truth. It sounds like in this case, every person has actually been betrayed. And what we found is every person we spoke to was betrayed, and they were eager to tell their story. And didn't deserve it, by the way. And believed that they didn't deserve it. We were not in a position to determine whether or not they deserved it. But 
truly did not deserve it because it caught them by surprise. So what is an obvious takeaway? Keep your mouth shut in the office? An obvious takeaway is listen to your gut, number one, which is look for red flags and never believe that people in your office are dear friends who will keep secrets. Your best friends should be outside and have been proven over the test of time. Work friends come and go. They are not consistent over time. But your outside friends aren't going to know the politics. They're not going to know the context of the organization. Isn't it human nature to want to talk a little bit about something bothering you in the office? It is human nature to want to talk about virtually everything. But again, it's important that you understand that while you can talk about things, things you talk about should never be things that can come to haunt you at a later point. While outside friends may not know the context and the politics, typically outside friends have similar involvements and similar engagements in other companies, and they can provide a good, objective, independent assessment, kind of like a board of directors. Boards of directors don't work in the company in which they're an independent director, but they know enough to be able to give an outside opinion. You mentioned the term blind trust. Do you think your spouse or significant other is going to be objective enough to be a sounding board? I notice you haven't mentioned that in terms of your outside friend circle. So I don't believe for the most part that your mother or your spouse or your significant other is objective enough to provide significant, consistent information I believe they have your best interests in mind, although in betrayal we saw many situations where the spouse betrayed another spouse, as long as you're not work partners. We have one story in the book, one person that we interviewed whose spouse betrayed them in a work situation. They worked in the same large organization. They were not in any way in the same department, but the spouse who was betrayed provided information to the spouse, pillow talk as it were, that then got used against her when that spouse told his superior. How does karma factor into all of this? So we have a wonderful story about karma and what we found is karma is really the best form of revenge. That if you throw it out to the universe and revenge happens, that's karmic revenge. One of our favorite betrayal stories is a story that happened a number of years ago. Very, very successful woman lawyer who worked in a firm where the partner did not believe there should be women partners, the managing partner. And she had a track record of significant success. And after each success, the managing partner would say, next time, next time. Well, finally, next time came, and she won a very, very significant case that no one expected her to win. And the partner had promised her that this would be the case that would earn her partnership. When she went to talk to the partner and say, now, he said, well, there's a problem. You're pregnant, and you're a woman, and pregnant women, mothers, have no place in a law firm. And this was not in 1975? This was not in 1975. It was more recent than that. And so she said, that's it. I've had it. I'm finding another firm. And literally packed her bags and walked out that day. As she was walking out the door, the executive assistant of the senior partner, the managing partner, said to her, I've seen this happen one too many times. I am completely fed up. Here's a file with the names and situations of every woman this has happened to. The woman took the file, didn't do anything with it, decided to focus on her pregnancy at the moment, had the baby, joined another firm as partner, and several years later she received a call from the general counsel of the White House. The managing partner was up for federal judgeship. Could she comment on his appropriateness? And she said, I have a file. 
unbelievable. Needless to say, he never got that judgeship. This wasn't your first book? This was not my first book. What was the first one about? The first book was entitled, I Didn't See It Coming, The Only Book You'll Ever Need to Avoid Being Blindsided in Business. And it focused solely on organizational politics and how to survive them, how to know when they're in play. This is a logical follow-on, betrayed as a logical follow-on to being blindsided. After the first book, I said I'd never write another one. <laughs> I've written betrayed, so who knows what the future Could will bring. Could a third one be in the, uh, in the possibilities? <laughs> Very possible. In the same theme or genre or something else? That seems to be something that's captivating me. One always looks at trends. What recommendations would you have for people moving forward? In order to survive betrayal, we found that there were three consistent themes. One is, in the moment of betrayal, control your narrative. Do not let anyone tell your story. Make sure that you have the story. The second is, keep your power and keep control. Do not lose it. Do not quit in anger. Stay there and fight the fight. And the third suggestion is, always keep a paper trail. And don't let anybody make you a scapegoat, so write it all down. Elaine, thank you very much. My pleasure. Elaine Eisenman, author of the recently published book, Betrayed, A Survivor's Guide. John, back to you. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. There are links to all our guests on the show notes. Just go to lobpodcast.com. The Language of Business is available wherever you get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Alexa, and if you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. We now have downloads in 64 countries, 35 states, plus D.C., and five provinces. Thanks for the support. If you like it, tell a friend. Social media for the language of business is by Jennifer Powell of Excellent Writers. Consulting producer Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, voiceover, and audio editing by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, thanks for listening to The Language of Business.